morning. I hope you all do love the rain because, man, we have got it, haven't we? It's incredible. All right, so uh, we are going to do a follow-up to last week's message. Uh, by design, what we're attempting to do here is um, each week throw out this topic of what the you know kind of mainstream churches believe for so many years. We're going to throw it out. We're calling this Bible boot camp, and we're going to throw it out kind of like a missile. And then, in the weeks following, we're going to do, do follow-ups to all the questions that came in. So I got lots and lots of wonderful, wonderful questions. Thank you all who came into the uh, dialogue room, which will be open every Sunday after each service. It's just this room that's right around the corner here. To talk about what we'll talk about today, or what last week, or on and on throughout this, we will talk about this, and so we really encourage you to come in and, and ask your questions. Thank you for those who came in there, or who emailed me, or wrote stuff down to me. We've got a lot of qu great questions. There's no way I can answer all of those questions. Um, even if we had all the time in the world, I still couldn't answer all those questions, but they're, they're really great questions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to respond to seven of them today. And um, this, past, uh, this past week, uh, we did, it was, uh, as I said last week, it was Ryan Hahn's uh, birthday. So we, uh, we had a staff meeting who actually went out uh, to a little restaurant around the corner from us. <clears throat> Derek said that we should just go totally biblical with our staff meeting. So we asked uh, Brendan not to show up, so it was just the men in the... Uh, <laughs> That was, that was Derek's suggestion, just the man there. And uh, so what was mentioned in the staff meeting is Josh wasn't here last uh, week at church. And so uh, Derek had commented, wow, you know, the sermon was just 15 minutes long last week. And so immediately Josh said, oh, man, how come I always miss the weeks when it's so short? Can you do it again? So this is the kind of encouragement and motivation that I get from the, uh, from the staff on messages and message length. And it's just really you know, motivating. So normally when I step up here, I have maybe three, four pages of notes max. Today I have 12 pages of notes. Uh, so here's the deal. Uh, I don't know how far I'm going to actually get in this. Uh, we'll go and then we'll stop, you know, 25, 30 minutes into this thing. Don't get nervous. And wherever we are, that's where we'll stop and then we'll try to pick up next week. So I just have no clue where, you know, how long this is going to take or what we're going to go through. But I want to say this, first of all, uh, I'm, not an, I'm not a scientist and I'm not an apologist. And for those of you who don't know what an apologist is, theologically speaking, it's somebody who has kind of given their life, their focus of their ministry efforts are at defending the faith. And so they're really good at issues of the reliability of scripture and how does that fit in with science and this kind of, and, that, and that's not me. I've kind of focused myself on the practical application of the Bible in our everyday lives. That's, that's more of who I am. So I'm uh, out of my comfort zone. As difficult as it is for me to talk about what we did a few weeks ago about dating, you know, this is like that times 10. So this, uh, I just want, that, want to say that right up front. That's where I am. Um, th well, the things that we're going to talk about today, uh, don't believe me. Don't just say, oh, well, he said it, you know, I believe it. Don't do that with anything, everybody. Don't just hear something that is of critical importance and say, ah, okay, I believe that. There are people who will say that the world, according to the Bible, was created in six literal 24-hour days. And, oh, well, that's it. There are people who go to biology class and they learn that God had absolutely nothing to do with anything. They actually just believe that. 
I read an important statement by the president of the University of Southern California a number of years ago in his book, Contrarian Leadership. He says, anytime you come across a piece of information that is important, why in the world would you believe it immediately? Think about it. Give it time. Process it. Investigate it. And I want to encourage every single one of you to do that. Think about the things that we'll talk about when it comes to the reliability of the Scriptures. Think about when it comes to the things about creationism and evolution. These ideas, think about them. Process them. Don't hear one piece of information and say, ah, that's it. Boom. It's over. Process that. Be open to new information. Some of us hear something and then we're just locked down and then no, that's like no new information can come into our brains. Don't do that. Be open to new information. Last week, I was sharing uh, about, uh, I don't know what I was talking about last week, but I was, sharing, I was sharing something about, I don't know how I got into it, but something about Columbus. And in his day, you know, people felt the world was flat. And Columbus came along because he read the scriptures and said it was a globe, it was a, it was a sphere. That's what I'd been told for years. That's what I had read. I mean, this for a long time. That's what I read. This past week, I'm listening to a lecture series from John Hopkins University. And the, uh, the speaker there, this professor, says, you know what? For hundreds of years before Columbus, people knew the world was round. That was a new piece of information to me. I thought, wow, okay, that totally contradicts. I went to a conference this past weekend, and the guy speaking said the same thing. People for a hundred years. And the issue and the debate that was going on with Columbus was that Columbus didn't think the world was as big as what it was. People were saying, no, the world's much bigger. You're not taking enough provisions with you. So this was new information to me. Now, what should I do with that? Should I say, you know what, you know what, Shh. I heard that Columbus thought the world was round and everybody thought it was flat and he believed the Bible and so he sailed off. Are you following me? I have to open myself up to new information. Always do that. Always do that. Some of us get locked down on one side of the fence or on the other side of the fence, but be open to new information and be open to learn and do it in a way that you can learn and that you can dialogue and that you can do it in a civil way. I don't know if you caught the Washington Post last week, last Sunday morning, actually. Who keeps a civil tongue? And it talks about this, you know, when people are on opposite sides of the table of how we just, like, attack each other and vilify each other. And that's not necessary at all. We can talk about, one of the things I love about grace so much is we talk about issues like this and we have people who come together from extreme different sides and we can do it in a meaningful and a civil uh, way. And I think that's excellent. So that's uh, by way of lead in for today's uh, message. Let's pray and let's do the first question. Uh, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would guide us in this uh, search that we're after today, this Bible boot camp. We're going to talk about beliefs about the Bible and respond to these questions. And Lord, I pray that you be right here in the midst of it and that uh, we'd walk away with something new to think about. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. My first question that I'm going to respond to was this. Isn't the Bible full of errors? Last week we talked about the Bible did not, it was not full of errors. And the question is, well, isn't the Bible full of errors? Has anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever heard somebody say, well, you know what? The Bible's full of errors. Anybody here ever heard that statement? Really? Just a few of you. Wow, that's interesting. 
Uh, I've heard that so much in my life. Maybe some of you are afraid to put your hand up. Please don't feel afraid. Throw it right up there. I've heard that for so often. Because anybody that did put your hand up, what? What, what are those errors? Just shout them out. Errors. What? What? Okay. That, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a different one. But what, what's, what others? Errors. It has actual errors. Okay. Uh, all right. Good. Contradictions. There you go. That's more. That's more what I'm after. That's more of an an, an an error. These are debated things. Creation and the sun stopping. What is a contradiction? What? Name one. Somebody name a contradiction in the Bible, please. Okay. All right. Let's keep going because I'm, I want I want to get to the the errors. Those are debatable. That's different. Okay. All right. It's not. It's not it either. I mean, we get. Keep coming. Keep it. We'll get to the errors in a sec. Keep coming. The number of angels in a tomb. Very good. Okay. Number of days. Well, I haven't heard that. That's very good. Okay. Yes. Jesus, not, not true son. Okay. All right. Okay. Anybody else? Any other? Anything? Yes. Rode one or two donkeys in? Oh, he was riding two donkeys. Well, he's God. He can do those kind of things. It's, it's kind of like, you know, primitive, like surfing or something. All right. Well, you didn't say anything of what I was anticipating at all. Uh, so, so the issues with the sun standing still in creation, um, those are kind of different issues. What we'll try to get to. Oh, I'm not going to touch the sun thing because that's just too much. But uh, uh, errors. So, can I tell you what I've heard? <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> this is what I've heard. Uh, so, um, you know, things, things like uh, in the scriptures about the mustard seed, where Jesus says it's the smallest of all seeds. It's, it's not the smallest of all seeds. Um, other places in scriptures, the, 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 the angels at the tomb is a good one. Somebody mentioned that. Uh, th- that th- that's a good one. I've heard that. Judas, I, I, all the time. When people, normally that's the number one thing that people say to me. Oh, the Bible's full of errors. Okay, what, name one. An error that is in the Bible. Well, it says in one of the Gospels that Judas like hung himself. And then it says in the book of Acts that he fell off a cliff and he died. Well, it's, yeah, did he hang himself or did he fall off the cliff? And so people look at that as an error. Anyway, okay. Um, let, me, let me show you a slide about scriptures because what we got it. Can we, can we just turn out the lights for a second? I wanna, can we put that uh, slide up and see if we can actually see this? I want to talk about the, kind of the reliability of the scriptures for a second. We'll come back to the errors in a minute if that's okay. All right, this is, when you're, this is really fascinating when you're talking about ancient literature. So here's you know, kind of the grouping of ancient literature that we look at. And if you, if you look at all of these of the way we try to say, can we really believe something? Are the documents themselves 
reliable for us. So if you just break this down, you look at when was the date that it was written. Okay, we're looking at dates that are written. And then what is the earliest copy that we have? Because we have nothing original. You all know that. There's nothing original, whether it's any ancient writing. We have nothing that's original because those things just kind of go. Uh, the time span, that's a big deal. So the copy that we have, what was the, what was the amount of time that transpired between the copy and, and the original text of when it was written? Look at, I mean, look at that. Uh, we, this is the stuff of how we understand history, you know, a thousand, two thousand, or two, three, four thousand years ago, okay? Look at the time spans that we have there for all of these things. 1,300 years. All of them are a thousand plus years, roughly, except for Caesar. He's 950. The Bible, a hundred years. It's a hundred years. Numbers of copies. Look at this. I mean, the most we have is for Homer. We got 643. Over 14,000 copies. The accuracy of it, the 95% accuracy, all this other, you see that at the top, 95% for Homer, all that, 99.5. Guys, it's unparalleled. I know the Bible takes tremendous knocks in our society today, tremendous knocks, so you can't believe it, and all these kind of things. But as far as just technical reliability of the scriptures and what we look at, it is unparalleled when you compare it to all other ancient texts. We need to say that. So when somebody says to you, ah, you can't rely upon the Bible, you say, oh, man. It's almost as if there is an agenda against the Bible. You want to just look at that graph. Okay? Let's turn the lights on. Let me say this, too. Um, the Bible, everybody, this is fascinating to think about. There are 66 individual books in the Bible. They were written by 40 different authors, everybody on two to three different continents in three different languages over a time span, check this out, of 1,500 years. What do you think you should see in the Bible over a time span of 1,500 years, two to three different continents by 40 different people? What should you see? There should be some disconnect. There should be some kind of progression in theology. There should be a progression. Over 1,500 years, you should see something changing in mindset and thinking. That's natural, right? This is natural. But you don't. The theology that you read in the Bible is consistent for 1,500 years. Normally what you would see is some kind of primitive idea about God that would do some kind of morph its way into polytheism or animism and then monotheism. But what you get in the Bible is right out of the gate all the way to the last book is a high ethical monotheism. What gives? How is that possible that 40 people over a span of 1,500 years got that synced up? It was almost as if God was guiding the effort. Something to think about. Question number two. Why is the God of the Old Testament so angry compared to the New Testament? Anybody heard that? Why is God so angry in the Old Testament? Excellent. Uh, let me read you a, a scripture. You tell me where you think it comes from. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Is that of the Old or the New Testament? Old Testament. And it's repeated over and over and over and over and over again. What we have is, is the Bible is this 
revelation. It's a growing revelation of who God is to us. And so God is the same old to new. Now, I grant it, grant it, there are some pretty angry parts, right? Now, here's two things uh, you need to think about is this. Uh, number one, some of the things that God was railing against with extreme anger were things where you would say, yes, thank you, God, for doing that, because if God didn't get severely angry at those things, you would be really put off at God, all right? In other words, people were being mistreated grossly, and God was raging out against them. So, so in other words, let me put it this way. So if you ever came upon Hitler in the, in, in the midst of his, you know, what he was doing at the height of it, or you came across, you know, um, you were in Russia at the height of all the killing that was going on there, or Rwanda or Cambodia, right? And you came across the person who was behind all of those atrocious, evil acts. How would you respond to that? If, like, you were seeing them and you were, how would you respond? Would you say, oh, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I don't think this is the best thing that you should be doing, you know, killing millions of people and raping and maiming children and women. That's, I don't know if that's appropriate. Is that a normal human response? You know, the normal human response when you see gross atrocities is anger, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I'll answer for you. It is. It is. It totally is. If I see somebody doing something incredibly wrong and vicious and wicked and evil, it rises up in me. God is not robotic. So put this in context. Think about it. So when you see God raging and railing so many times in the Old Testament, it's because infant sacrifice is taking place or people are being mistreated and maimed and hurt. All kinds of atrocities are happening against them. So you need to factor that in. Now, here's the other question. People say, well, okay, the fall happened in the garden, right? Adam and Eve garden. And so then, then things, the rules seem to change when Jesus comes along. Well, kind of, yes, sort of. But it's all foretold that there will be this age of grace that comes when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes. And so people then, the next question is, well, why, why did we have to wait? I mean, why all this waiting for all these years and all these atrocities taking place? Why didn't you have the fall and then immediately, boom, here comes Jesus? Like Cain and Abel don't even get born yet, and, and Jesus is sent right away. And I say, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a great idea. We should do it. Matter of fact, we should just send Jesus right away, and then immediately we all go to heaven, and then or they go to heaven, and... I don't know, we never exist or something like that. I don't have an answer for that. I have no answer. It sounds great to me. I'm a very impatient person, so that greatly appeals to me. Let's just get it over with right away. I don't, I don't, I don't have an answer for why that took place uh, like it did. But um, I do know that if you look at Scripture and you really think about it and you think about the times where you see uh, God so angry in the Scriptures, there's a reason why. And the reasons why he's angry, you're very happy about. If you're a normal human being, you're very happy about it. Because don't we all, like, when somebody who has been mistreated so badly and finally they get their victory, right? Finally, when something turns out well for them, don't we all cheer? Don't we make movies about that? This is the same thing that's going on, everybody. It's the same exact thing. Question three was, what does it mean that the Bible is alive? That's a great question bunch of people ask me that question. What does it mean that the Bible is alive? Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living. So what does it mean that the psalmist says that God's word is eternal or God's word is living? What exactly does that mean? Well, you know how um, if, you, if, if you wanted to drink some milk, you know, one day and you opened up the refrigerator and, 
and you looked in and you couldn't find any milk, but you looked at the back of your refrigerator and there was a gallon of milk back there and it expired three years ago? You know how you probably wouldn't drink that? Most of us wouldn't take a swig off of that gallon of milk, right? It has an expiration date. So when the Bible says that it is living and it is eternal, it's saying that it never expires. In other words, this. The truths, the principles that are in the Bible right here never go out of date. And they never will. What is in here has worked for thousands of years. And long after we're gone, it'll keep working. That's what it's saying. It's saying that when you need hope, when you need peace, when you need healing, when you need help or guidance or wisdom, when you need to hear from God, that you can always pick up the Bible and read it, and it'll work today, tomorrow, and for all the rest of eternity. What it's simply saying when it's saying it's living is that it never expires. It doesn't have an expiration date. That's what I believe the Bible is trying to say to us by saying it, it just simply never, it never expires. Well, this is good. I'm already up to page number four, so that's not bad. All right, question number four is, is the Bible the only inspired text? Is, the, is it the only inspired text? That's a great question, too. Are there other inspired texts that we have? Let me say this very clearly straight up front. The Bible, in my, my opinion, just my opinion, okay, is in a class all by itself. Uh, it's in a class completely by itself. Um, the books of the Bible claim divine inspiration, that they were guided by God. The books of the New Testament, particularly, because we're doing the New Testament challenge, let's talk about New Testament for just a minute. The books in the New Testament were written by eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ or close associates to eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, and those books claim divine inspiration, and they were written in a very short time span afterwards, all right? Uh, recently, what has been called into question, and so many people heard about it, is this whole deal with Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. Now, that whole thing has been going on for a long time. Dan Brown just simply brought it out recently. And he focuses on what we call the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels were written about 100 years after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Are you tracking with me? So at a much later date, they were refuted quickly because of their heresy. Now, in a twisted deal here... Uh, what Dan Brown focuses on in his novel, The Da Vinci Code, in which so many people have harped on and rages is about the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, here, track with me. Listen, listen. Dan Brown insists, you know, that Jesus Christ was just a human and denies his deity. And he uses the Gnostic Gospels to do that. Do you know what the Gnostic Gospels do? The Gnostic Gospels deny the humanity of Jesus Christ and only lift up his deity. Are you trying to confuse us? Because it's working. Did anybody just track with what I said? I hope, I hope that made sense. I hope I didn't speak that too fast. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. Those Gospels were refuted back when they were given. And yet, the moment we hear something, we have all this evidence about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we get this little peep about a Gnostic gospel, we're like, whoa, that settles it. All that we've heard or been taught about Jesus Christ, that he was God and he was man, 100% God, 100% man, is completely gone because we got this one little, you know, morsel. So you have to be really careful with that. Okay. Anybody have a question? Question? I have no answers if you have a question, but I'm glad to at least ask. Is the Bible figurative or literal? 
That was question number five for me. Is the Bible figurative or literal? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's figurative and literal. It is a book. It is filled with uh, uh, historical narrative, literal facts. Uh, it is filled with allegories and metaphors. Okay? And we'll talk about this in a second because my next question is how to interpret the Bible. But uh, you have to use plain common sense when you're reading the Bible. It's a book. And you employ the same ways of looking and reading the Bible that you would employ reading other pieces of literature. You have to do that. You can't just all of a sudden throw all the rules out. You have to use those same rules. That's very important to say. You have to do that. Uh, yes, it is both figurative and, 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 and literal. All right, so then how that brings us to the next question. So then how do you interpret the Bible? Well, you do it very carefully. You're very careful. Um, I'm just going to give you some steps. This is not exhaustive, just some things I want to go through. Number one, I think you should pray. Like, I, I think that on the front of every Bible, there should be a big sticker that somebody puts there and says, stop, don't read before you pray. I mean, it really helps to pray before you actually read it. But step number two is this. Words matter. You know how every now and then I'll say, well, you know, the Greek word means this, the Hebrew word means this. You know why I do that? Because the words matter. Now, for those of you who speak different languages, I don't. I'm an American, and I only speak English. It's the language we'll speak when we get to heaven, so there's no use in why I have no, I have no need to explore other languages. But for those of you who speak other languages, you know the difficulties of translation. Okay, So we're talking about translating a language. We're talking about something like Greek, who's a very defined, a very specific language, who has multiple words. Like we have the word love, right? We have love. That's all we have. In it. There's like three. Isn't there three or four words? Three in the Greek language for love. It's very So that, that presents some difficulties. Words matter. They matter a lot. I can't tell you how many people that I talked to about a year ago, I mentioned, I talk about the fact where Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother, you can't follow after me. I can't tell you the amount of people who came to me and said, you know what? I got totally turned off on Jesus because I heard that as a kid. And I kind of like walked away from this full belief in Jesus Christ or walked away from the church because that didn't make sense. Here's a good rule. Anytime something doesn't make sense, pause. Pause and investigate. Okay? Hate. Unless you hate. So what does that word mean? It doesn't mean the same thing as we, we use today as an absolute term. It wasn't used as an absolute term in Jesus' day. It's completely appropriate for him to say. You know what the word means in Jesus' day? Here's where words matter. It means to love less. He's just saying simply is you've got to put God in your matter of order of priorities. You've got to put God number one and then your, you know, your family next and everything else flows from there. Like get your relationship with God right and then everything else is going to begin to fall into place. That's all he was saying. Period. Period. I love this one because, you know, I read this years ago about Oprah. Oprah went to church all the time. She sat in church one day. She was in her 20s. And the minister was up there railing about from the book of Exodus that God says, I'm a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. And she said, whoa, I don't think I want to have anything to do with a God who is jealous, a little petty, jealous. What's up with him? The minister failed to explain the meaning of the word. Now, we know immediately, don't... Here, think, everybody. There's a problem when God says he's jealous. What does the Bible tell God is? God is love. What is love? Love is not jealous. Oh, wait a minute. If God is love and love is not jealous, is God jealous? So immediately we know that we got a problem. So we go and investigate the word. And find, what does it mean to be jealous? God is simply saying, I want to be in a relationship with you. I love you. That's the message of the entire Bible, start to finish. Genesis to Revelation. It's a love story of God saying, I care about you so much. I want to be in a relationship with you. 
Words matter. Point number two in how to interpret the Bible is this. As soon as I can turn the page. Historical context. Historical context. I mentioned this a few moments ago about the mustard seed, right? People often bring that up as an error. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, he said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed on the face of the earth, right? Is anybody familiar with that? What he was saying? Smallest seed. Is it the smallest seed? No, it's not. The orchid. The seed for the flower of the orchid is the smallest seed. Now, I researched this past week. I thought, you know, does this controversy still rage? Just the whole website dedicated this whole thing. And this guy writes up this thing about the mustard seed, and he's got this whole logical argument. and says, okay, Jesus said clearly the mustard seed is the smallest. Clearly it is not. So this means one of two things, which both actually connect to each other. He says, God, Jesus says that he is God. How is it that he does not know that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed? He must not be God. It's either that or Mark, who wrote this down, has no idea what he's talking about. Well, Mark has no idea what he's talking about, then we don't know a lot about Jesus, and so basically it ends up we can't really trust Jesus, right? Okay. All right, here's the, here's the thing. Context matters a lot. What's the context? Jesus is telling a parable, everybody. This has nothing to do with the Bible, what I'm getting ready to tell you. Jesus is telling a parable. 2,000 years ago, parables, here's what you do with parables. The main point's the only thing that matters. Facts don't matter. Facts do not matter. The only thing that matters is the main point of what the story is trying to get across to you. The story is not about the size of a mustard seed. The story is about the kingdom of God. You can go in and pick out other um, errors in Jesus' parables because they're meant to be there. Because the main point's the only thing that matters. Parables in Jesus' day, not told just by Jesus, told by all kinds of people, were filled with errors. You know why? Because the main point's the only thing that matters. Context. Context is king. So we got all kinds of people who say, oh, psh, I'm not going to believe in God. I'm not going to believe in the Bible. I'm not going to believe in Jesus Christ. You know why? Because of mustard seed. Is that, is, that, is that a good way to go about that? You know, when people a lot of times tell me that I can't trust the Bible because of the way Judas died or because of the mustard seed, I say, oh, you're going to hang your eternity on a mustard seed. Is that smart? Is it smart? Something to think about. Um, let me get, let me address one other thing here, okay? Because there's there's a there's a verse in the Bible that that talks about, and um, a lot of women love this verse uh, about wives submitting to husbands. I love that verse. Um, and people say, well, you know, the Bible is this patriarchal relic, kind of like it's expired. And maybe some of you have heard that this major knock against the Bible that it's a relic, it's full of old myths, and it's out of date, and this kind of stuff. And, you know, wives submit yourselves to, to husbands. Now, here's where words matter again, and context matters, and it, and it matters a lot. So think about this for a second. Back at, let's call it ground zero, when Christianity was just lifting off, so to speak, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, it began to spread in Rome, and it began to spread amongst a certain group of people Roman aristocracy, female Roman aristocracy. Why was it spreading so rapidly amongst wives, aristocratic wives? Why would that be? Why would this patriarchal put down women, submit women? Why would it be, why would it be exploding amongst women? Why was that happening? You know why? Because Christianity 
suggested equality with both men and women. Women looked at it as completely liberating to them, and they were flocking to Christianity because it was a liberation. So what? Okay, wait. That's ground zero. That's what the context was back then. So what, what, how do we then intellectually say what's going on here? Well, we go back and we figure out what does that word mean and why did he say it in that context? And we look at other scriptures that say there is no male and no female in Jesus Christ. We are all equal. Paul was never saying that somehow women are not equal. It means more. And we're not going to do a whole thing on submission now. I'm just telling you, context matters and words matter. Compare scripture to scripture. Never take one scripture and say, oh, that's it. I got this little piece of scripture or something, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna build my whole life around these one, this one verse. Don't ever do that. Always compare scriptures, multiple scriptures, and fat, lastly, please use common sense. Okay. So my question number seven: Am I right on that time? I don't have my watch on. It is 10:30. There's no way I'll be able to do this next one. Um, the last one. <clears throat> is that science uh, in the Bible, do they fit or do they fight? Do they fit or do they fight? And this is something that I really want to talk about, and I want to do justice with it um, on time, uh, with giving it the right amount of time. So let me, let me say this to kind of give you an overview. Here's what we'll do next week. Uh, we're going to focus solely on this one question then. Does science in the Bible, do they, do they fit or do they fight? And we're going to talk about uh, evolution, and I'm going to, I'm going to play you a clip uh, from Richard Dawkins. Everybody familiar with Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion? And uh, he's a very well-known atheist. Uh, and we're talking about the origin of life. And we're talking about some things that uh, we hear. You know, I, I, I think that maybe the place where more atheists are created than anywhere else is the biology class. I think biology classes are, are, are producing... Uh, the greatest number of atheists in, in, in America or around the world today. And why is that? And we want to take a look at that. And what does that mean? And um, then I, I really want to give a challenge to followers of Jesus Christ, kind of in the boot camp theme. And I'll just give you a kind of a foreshadowing of this. For some reason, everybody, it has only been of recently. When I say recently, I'm talking about the last hundred or so years that followers of Jesus Christ have been somehow characterized as the village idiots. This is not our history. Those are not our roots. Maybe you've heard said, oh yeah, they're ignorant or they're just intellectually dull. Maybe you've heard that and characterizing people who were followers of Jesus Christ. I have. And I want to clearly say to everybody, those are not our roots. When America was at its infancy, filled with small towns and villages, who was the most well-read and oftentimes the most educated person in that town? The local pastor. Who began most, if not all, of the Ivy League colleges? The church. The church did that. Who were the leaders in science and in medicine and law and logic and in reason? The church, everybody. You ever seen that bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? Huh? You ever seen that? In some ways that characterizes the Christian church today. But I want to tell you this. We are a blip on the radar screen. Because that is not our history as a church. 
because the masterpieces in logic and reason were theologians for hundreds and hundreds of years. We must learn. We must somehow, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, here's the challenge to you. We must once again get on the cutting edge of intellectual pursuit. There is a quote on the library of where I went to seminary. It says, Unite the two so long disjoined, knowledge and vital piety. Scientists years ago, does science and religion, faith, does it fit together? Oh my gosh. These guys, like Kepler, the astronomer of the 17th century, was completely motivated by his relationship with God to do his work. Motivated. Do they fit together? Are you kidding me? Yes. Wonderfully well. Paul, Augustine, Calvin, logical reason, they would have never dreamed of a statement, God said it, I believe it, that said it. That would be incredibly offensive to them. Incredibly offensive to them. The Bible says that we should study to show ourselves approved. The Bible says that we should always be ready to give an answer to the hope that we have. Here's the last thing I'll say. I know you're getting tired of listening. Acts 26. Wonderful story. The Apostle Paul, a man, a follower of Jesus Christ, two PhDs by the time he was 21 years of age. Okay? Check that out. Two PhDs by the time he's 21. A masterpiece in logic and reason. This faith and faith alone, forget it. He's a masterpiece in logic and reason. Everything that he says has a logical reason to it. And in Acts 26, after he has been arrested, he's on his way to Rome. He's, make, he's in a stopover. He's in a holding cell. He is called up to speak to two guys, King Agrippa and Festus in Acts chapter 26. And he gives them this logical, well-based, his theology of why he's put his faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, Festus jumps up out of his throne. He can't take it in Acts 26. And he says, stop, Paul, your great learning has driven you insane. That's a wonderful line. That God would motivate every single follower of Jesus Christ to be driven insane by our great learning because the church for thousands of years was there. Do we have atrocities in the church? Yes, we got terrible things that we've done in the past thousand years. But one of the things that we were, we were on the cutting edge of intellectualism and we need to be there again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for challenges that you give to us. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to talk, to think, to research and study your word, science, medicine, law, on and on it goes. That we would honor your word by studying to show ourselves approved, God. That we would never settle for this blind faith. Lord, we would pursue knowledge and learning and we would do it, God, for your honor and for your glory. I ask this, Lord, in Christ's holy name. Amen.